Families have been torn apart by that. Uh, 21 confirmed dead and then back it up just a little bit and we've got somebody hunting people in inner city Buffalo in a grocery store based likely on their race. Oh, man. And both by 18-year-old young men. Um, these are sorrows beyond sorrow and I want to encourage you, church, we, we are not in those cities, so I don't know, our response is limited, but let the news feed be a prompt for your praying, please. Pray for God's people there. They're bearing the mercy and grace of Christ to people that, whose lives have just been torn apart, and um, you're, we're seeing glimpses of it. The news will sometimes show people in prayer, and I pray, pray for our brothers and sisters there as they minister to inconsolable people. Um, on top of all of that, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, this week published a nearly 300-page report on sexual abuse in the convention that spanned decades, um, included a list of offenders within and without the SBC. Many, if not most of them, either are or have been pastors. Um, the prophet Ezekiel spoke into times like this when he wrote, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the, you had not, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. Daniel talked about this as a kind of brokenness. It is that. But it seems like a darker evil than that. When people who are charged with the shepherding care of God's people violate them and abuse them. Um, the Lord speaks against those shepherds who use and abuse the sheep for their personal gain and satisfaction. And uh, our leaders, as are any of you who've read this report or the news summaries of it, are reeling from the scope of the sin and and even cover up amongst those who are charged with shepherding and caring for God's people. And uh, it is for us, as it is I'm sure for you, and it is without a doubt for our chief shepherd, a sorrow beyond words that this is happening in the church. When shepherds abuse the sheep rather than feed and protect them. And I wanted you to know that I, um, in light of this happening in our culture now and in recent years, a couple of years ago, our, our leaders, um, our elders asked a team of North Wakers, a select team of North Wakers, to develop a plan of response should this anus sin ever be visited on our church family where a North Wake leader would abuse someone in his or her care. That team is called the APOC team. It simply means a point of contact. And they exist solely as a place for a victim to file an accusation against a leader at North Wake who's, at whose hands they have suffered abuse. 
Now, this team has rigorously prepared to serve in this way. They have an extremely thorough guiding document that's been developed over the last couple of years. And my hope and prayer is that they will never be called on to use it. Um, But you'll be receiving more information about how to access that team should it ever be needed and about this important safeguard here uh, at our church. You'll be hearing about that in the near future. Um, In addition, uh, Craig Morissette in the last year or two has led all of our staff through the Church Cares training, 12 weeks of training on becoming a church that cares well for the abused. Um, There is also significant work going on at Northwake in what is a related area of sin in our day, and that is the sin of domestic violence. Um, We are finalizing a domestic violence policy even as we speak. And we are fortunate to have trained advocates in our church for victims of domestic abuse. Um, We have been, we continue to be aware that these sins are wrecking the church and the lives of the very ones God has called us to protect. And as a result, we have been working and we need to continue to work to be a place where people can access the power of the gospel for grace and mercy and healing in Jesus. So next Sunday evening at our regular monthly prayer gathering, which is an essential part of the life of our church. I hope you know this is a really important part of the life of our church. Uh, We'll focus on praying about these issues in part during that time next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. I hope you'll join us. In the next week or so, you will also be receiving a letter from our elders that will provide some guidance and, and access to some resources to help you understand and process this sorrowful report from the SBC that has come out. Our elders and our, our staff, our leaders, we are eager to hear your questions and concerns in these matters, so please, please do, if you have questions and concerns, reach out to us. And let us hear from you so that we can serve you well. And we so covet your prayers about all of this. When you see this on your newsfeed, and you will, please let it be a prompt to pray. Um, and I would ask you to pray, especially for our church, for Christ's protection of us, especially for our leaders, Um, for protection and wisdom as we walk through this because our adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we pray that he would find not one here, not, not one here. So, um, if you would, as we prepare to open up the scriptures, let's just, let's just pray for the families in Texas and Buffalo and uh, those who've suffered this abuse in our churches one more time, and we'll open the scriptures together. Would you pray with me, please? Good Father, have mercy on us. As a people, our sins are great. Amongst our leaders, our sins are unthinkable. So have mercy on us, forgive us. And for those who have suffered under those shepherds and suffered that kind of abuse, Lord, may your mercy and grace be sufficient for their good healing. May they find in you comfort and peace and hope again. Lord, we think of these 
two cities down in Texas, west that little town west of San Antonio and then up in Buffalo where sorrow and anger and is racking those communities. God have mercy there as well. Lord have mercy. Use your people there. Grant their leaders wisdom. Grant their people great compassion. Um, and may your gospel bring healing there to those whose lives have been torn apart. And Lord, now bring to us the hope we need to be your ministers of that gospel here in our community. Bring it to us, Lord, today through your prophet Hosea, we pray, Christ in your name, amen. Okay, so do turn with me in the book of Hosea to chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing our study this morning of this shocking little book. Um, Hosea started with a stunning and shocking and beautiful portrayal of the love of God in the early chapters for his people, and it started this way. The Lord first spoke to Hosea, this is what he said, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And this was to represent to them the way God loves an unfaithful people. We heard God speak words like this to, to his wayward bride. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And I will betroth you to me forever, God says. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. This, these opening chapters and this kind of acted out parable of Hosea's love for the wayward Gomer, um, it's a, it's a powerful statement of the love of God for undeserving people. He really does love us like that, even on our worst days. Now, the next handful of chapters um, are full of God chastening his people in the severest of fashions because of their sin and unfaithfulness. Carson and Jerry Lassiter taught about it over the last two weeks. Carson said it was like God had taken his wife to court. And there were accusations made and evidence presented and a guilty verdict declared. God really does take sin that seriously. And today, though, after all of those chapters, those uh, seven or so chapters of judgment, God is letting us come up for a breath of fresh air from all this courtroom justice and he's gonna take another whack at communicating his love for his wayward people, for you and me. Okay. And to do it, he fashions yet another family image to convey his love. And the story he uses, it's his oldest families, right? It, it goes something like this. A son grows up in a loving home, cherished, beloved. It's a believing home. And he learns there the truths of the faith, but at some point, through some unforeseen influence, he begins to drift away from family and from faith. And chores get undone and curfews get missed and money goes missing and friends change and family time becomes a battleground. And then by someone's choice, he moves out. But the sorrow and the worry and the empty place at the dinner table remain you know, it's an all-too-common story, isn't it? Uh, I mean, how many of you know someone who at some point was estranged from their family, especially their parents? 
That might even be your story. And I imagine the prevailing commonality of that is why God used that image in part as a way to put his love on display in Hosea 11. See, first God showed his love by having a prophet love and then love again a woman who's wholly undeserving. Here in chapter 11, he speaks of his love the way a father loves a wayward and rebellious son. There's a pastor, his name is Stan Mast, and he wrote about the need for this passage and other passages like this in the Old Testament when he says that Marcion was the first to do it. Surely not the last. In the middle of the second century after Christ, Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament was different than the Father of Jesus Christ in the New. The God of the Old Testament was angry, violent, judgmental, and not worth following if you were a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says, for many unwitting contemporary Martianites, the Old Testament is a closed book. And he says, that's a shame. Because Old Testament passages like Hosea 11 open up the heart of God in a way that will move any follower of Jesus to tears of gratitude and love. In Hosea 1 through 3, he says, we saw God as a jilted lover, a husband betrayed by an adulterous wife. Here in chapter 11, we see God as a broken-hearted parent, a father or mother whose child is turned away from his loving parents to follow a worthless gang that wanders the neighborhood, promising the good life it can never deliver. So let's listen in now in chapter 11 on God's lamenting love for his wayward son. And that's us, okay? That's us. It starts this way in verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, God says. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that last phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son, might sound familiar to you if you've ever read Matthew's biography of Jesus. He talks about Jesus, Matthew talks about Jesus' parents' flight from Egypt, seeking refuge, or flight to Egypt rather, seeking refuge there as a fulfillment of this little phrase by Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Professor Dwayne Garrett says that what Jesus is doing here is acting out in his life the story of God's people in the Old Testament. He says, you see things like this. Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, just as Israel was there for 40 years. Jesus gave his law on a mountain, just as God gave the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus miraculously fed his followers in the wilderness, just as Moses gave the people manna in the wilderness. As such, it's hardly surprising that Matthew could see a parallel between Jesus' departure from Egypt and the striking line of Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. But God is like a proud father of a new son here. He loves him, loves his young son. He's playing with his toddler on the floor, piggyback rides, bedtime stories. Imagine a dad loving his son in the best of ways, and God loved Israel like that and more. That reference to Egypt points back to a time in the history of God's people when they were slaves, back in the book of Exodus when they were held captive in Egypt until God rescued them in the most dramatic of ways. Some of you have read about it or you've seen it in the movies, right? Those 10 terrible plagues, the parting of the Red Sea miraculously. You can read about it in the early chapters of the book of Exodus It's the loving rescue of all loving rescues in the Old Testament. And God is saying, 
That is what the Exodus is all about. It's my love for my son on display. And that's how God viewed his people, as his firstborn son. So, one verse into the chapter, so far, so good. God really loves his people. But things are about to go sideways fast, not just in our chapter, but in the life of God's people that it represents. Look at verse two. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, those false gods we've been talking about, and burning offerings to idols. Now, you've all seen a little toddler gleefully run from the parents when they're chasing it. It's like a game to them. It's not a game to the parents. It's definitely not a game when the child gets older. And now we're back to that most ancient story of the wayward young person hanging out with the wrong friends, making terrible choices, rebelling on every front. Everything their parents try just seems to drive them further away, whether it's more consequences or less, more privileges or less. They seem bent on running as far away as they can, as fast as they can. Back in that story in Exodus, that parting of the Red Sea we talked about happens in chapter 14. But by chapter 16, God's people, his son, as he calls him, was already grumbling. And by the very start of chapter 17, just a page or two later, after the great rescue of the Red Sea, we hear that grumbling taking root and growing weed-like in their souls. This is what we read in Exodus 17. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Some of you are old enough and some of you are retro enough to remember a song by Keith Green about this very thing. So you want to go back to Egypt, right, where it's warm and secure. Are you sorry you bought the one-way ticket when you thought you were sure? From the very start, Hosea is telling us, God's people were longing to go back to the safety and security of Egypt and by implication, their God's. And now, centuries later, as Hosea prophesies, prophecies rather, they, they want to run after the Baals, the gods of their neighbors. It's interesting, isn't it, how enticing our neighbor's gods always are for us, even, even today. Listen to God's lament over his son's rejection of his love in verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, Ephraim is another way to speak of Israel, Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. You catch that I, right? I, 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 I. It was I who taught, I who took them, I who led them. I became, I bent down and fed them. All that they had came from God's loving hand. If we stay in the image of father and son, it's like God taught his son how to walk, swooped him up in his arms, kissed his boo-boos, made who knows how many emergency room visits, led him with kindness and love, eased their hardships, got down on their level and spoon-fed them. They owe it all to their father God. He did everything for them. This father loves his son, which represents his people, beyond the shadow of a doubt. 
But all that God had done, Israel has overlooked or forgotten or even denied. And so they grumbled and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Or in Hosea's day, they wanted to go to their neighbor's gods, to the Baals. So as our story unfolds, the question now is, what will this parent do? What will God do with his rebellious son as he runs away to other gods? Will he discipline him? Will he lock him in his room? Will he disown him? Look at verses five through seven. They shall, God says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. At this point, it feels like we're back in court, right? Um, Yahweh's case against his, his wayward son in verses one through four, has issued a guilty verdict, and now the sentence is to be pronounced. Invasion, in verse six. Exile, verse five. Burdensome captivity, verse seven. Another person describes Israel's rebellion this way. They have proven their waywardness time and time again, not occasionally, but they are bent on turning away from me, verse seven says. This is settled recalcitrance. So indeed, we read here, discipline is coming. God is about to give his people over to a neighboring enemy power, Assyria. And there they'll reap the consequences of their choices. Their cities are gonna be overthrown by the sword. Their secure gates are gonna be kicked in and consumed. And God will not hear their cries nor rescue them. It feels like that old parenting adage, right? You made your bed, now you get to sleep in it. And the law of Deuteronomy required worse of a rebellious son. Listen to Deuteronomy 21. It says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, they will not, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So is that where this is headed? Is God done with his rebellious child? Okay, let me uh, let you up for air just for a minute and give you a visual summary of what's going on in Hosea 11. Watch the screen just for a minute. So, you are the silly sheep in the video, right? That's, that's who you are, in case you're having trouble picking it out. But the farmer is not like God. God does not give up and walk away. In fact, he cannot. 
Listen to these beautiful words of parental torment from the heart of God in verse eight. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, my son? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He mentions a couple of really obscure cities there, Adma and Zeboim. They are part of the destructive judgment uh, along with more famous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You may have heard of those. Again, listen to Professor Hubbard as he describes the significance of these insignificant cities. He says, the emphasis is on places that have been utterly, irrevocably destroyed for their persistent apostasy. Not even their rubble remains, only their memory Adma and Zeboim are listed with Sodom and Gomorrah as cities of the plain erased by divine judgment in the days of Abraham. The imagery is that of total destruction, of giving up and handing them over fully to an enemy power. And God is wondering aloud here, how could he ever possibly give up his son? He won't. He can't. Again, Professor Hubbard says, covenant love overrode covenant law and mercy beyond judgment was promised in each offer um, of hope the language of Hosea turns intensely personal and familial God is a disciplining but forgiving husband in chapter 2 and 3 he is a healing and reconciling lover in chapter 14 we'll see that next week he is an authoritative yet compassionately forbearing parent in chapter 11 And so our God, our good, good Father, declares in verse 9 his decision about what he shall do with his rebellious son. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. It's been suggested by um, author Dane Ortland that... uh, we actually deep down expect God to say the following with one small word change. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will therefore come in wrath. But judgment and discipline will not be God's final word for his beloved son. He's not like just any old father. He's not like any man at all, he says here. He will never, the hymn writer says, no, never forsake. The hymn goes like this, the soul that on Jesus leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God is not like us. His limits of love cannot be exhausted. He will never fail us or forsake us, the book of Hebrews says. And so though his discipline is severe, to be sure, His love outlasts his judgment and triumphs over it. When God revealed himself to Moses, this is what he said in part. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is not like us. He is ever forgiving, ever loving. 
Now, if we go back to chapter 11 in Hosea again, the image shifts from God as ever-loving father to God as fearsome lion. Think Aslan, right? Look at verses 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The lion roars and his people come to him, fearful yet drawn irresistibly. The animal imagery here is used to underscore God's authority, right? Kids might ignore their parents, the writer says, but a bird or a dove can scarcely ignore a lion's roar. This, and this is the pattern of Hosea, from severe judgment to greater mercy, Again and again it unfolds. God disciplines us for our sin severely, Hosea says. It's a warning not to pursue temptation. Yet he loves his people, even at our worst, like a husband loves his wayward wife. Not just any old husband, but a husband that loves her and pursues her and buys her back from slavery and loves her yet again. Our God loves us like that. He loves you like that. He loves his people, even at our worst, like a dad. Like a dad who loves his rebellious son. And not just any old dad. A dad that refuses to give his anger the upper hand. A dad whose compassion grows and grows, warm and tender, until it swallows up his anger and prohibits his wrath. God loves us prodigals. He really does. And if that's you today, if you've been far from God and somehow by God's mercy you found yourself here today, um, know that God is wooing you back. Compassion waits for you on your return, not wrath. It's interesting. This is a story about a prodigal son. Jesus, if you remember, he told a story about a prodigal son. It's pretty short. Let me tell it to you. From Luke 15, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me and he divided his property between his sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against you And against heaven before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and bring, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring that fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this 
is my son. He was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to party. Now, if you read Luke 15 this afternoon, I hope you will, um, there's more to this story. There's a whole section just for us older brothers, those of us who think maybe the rebels are getting off too easy. Right? Maybe we're talking just a little bit too much about mercy and grace and that kind of stuff and not enough about choices have consequences and that kind of stuff. If you find yourself thinking like that this morning, you should read the rest of Luke 15. It's for you. It's about how God loves you. But I can't help but wonder that when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, Hosea 11 wasn't on his mind. In both stories, the son is the worst and the father is the best. That's us and that's our God. That's our father. That's how he loves you and me. In the Old Testament, it's been said that the great demonstration of the love of God is the Exodus, God's great rescue from slavery in Egypt. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has authoritatively said the great demonstration of the love of God is the Father giving his Son ultimately to bear the cross for us. It's very familiar. So listen closely again and catch its beauty this time. This is John's telling. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not to condemn but to love. That's our God who is calling you. This morning, we wanna close our time together by celebrating what's called the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. It's a way that we declare together the Lord's death until he comes. We declare together the Lord's love until he comes. It's a way for us to remember together how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ for us wayward ones. So today, as you come to this table, I want you to just remember one thing. As the songwriter put it, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Drink deeply of that love. Give thanks that this is the heart of our God even towards us. As you come to the table today, the table is open at North Wake for anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. That you are willing to forsake your sin and come to this table to receive grace and mercy from Jesus. Um, I'd like to ask you to use the center aisle and the two wall aisles to approach the table. And then um, these two aisles to return to your seats. And when you take the elements, you return to your seat, I'd like to ask you to stand, remain standing at that point in time and join in the worship team as they lead us in song to the table. So if you would, uh, why don't we all stand together? And I'll lead us in prayer and then you're welcome to approach the table. Lord, have mercy on us. We, is, we treasure the fact that you love us anyway. Anyway. 
in spite of. And so we come to you now and welcome that. Cling to it. Celebrate it. Remember it and worship you for it. Jesus, we worship you, the one who died, body broken and bloodshed, and rose again on the third day for us. Thank you, Jesus. Receive this act of worship now.